Will you turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, Exodus 20? You'll need a Bible to see the passage we're going to be considering. So these brothers have some. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, then get their attention and they'll get one of those to you. It's our gift to you. Keep that Bible. We want everyone to own a copy of God's Word. Exodus 20. In 2016, a British citizen living in this country wrote a book about her observations of Americans. Her first was how unhappy so many of us are. She wrote a book about it titled, America the Unhappy, Why Our Search for Happiness is Driving Us Crazy. And in it, she said, People in America spend more time, emotional energy, and money in the quest for contentment than any nation on earth. The systematic packaging and selling of happiness is an industry estimated to be worth more than $10 billion, about the same size as Hollywood expends. And in recent years, this industry has found a new respectability. While the words self-help guru might once have conjured some kind of clammy, fist-pumping huckster roaring out platitudes to a desperate crowd, it's now more likely to be an Ivy League, quote, positive psychology professor with a string of TED Talks and a government contract. A decade ago, meditation practiced anywhere outside of Tibet or adolescence had the vague whiff of patchouli and dysfunction about it. Now investment bankers love it. Americans spend billions a year on mindfulness products and yoga, Enough money, in fact, that savvy marketeers have even designated a whole new category that they're calling spiritual spending. In a culture that loves consumerism, happiness has become the ultimate consumer product. This is the American dream, she says, applied to the soul. The idea is that if you put in enough emotional elbow grease, slog out enough hours of positive thinking, mindful coloring, gratitude journal keeping, And self-help book reading, you'll ultimately be rewarded with true happiness. But she says, this approach to contentment isn't working. Despite all of the effort and money they are pumping into the endeavor, Americans consistently rank as some of the least happy people in the developed world. One recent survey even placed the day-to-day happiness of the American people two places behind the citizens of Rwanda. And what's more, according to the World Health Organization, Americans are far and away the most anxious people on the planet, with nearly a third of people in this country likely to suffer from an anxiety disorder in their lifetime. So what is going wrong? Why isn't all of this effort paying off? Well, there are many reasons that could be and are given, in fact, in that book. But one obvious explanation is that Americans have more available than anyone else in the world. And therefore, there's more to want and more things to lament not having. We have plenty. We are the land of plenty. America the beautiful is the land of the fruited plain. But we want more. In the words of those great theologians, the Eagles, in Desperado, they said... Now, it seems to me some fine things have been laid upon your table. But you only want the ones you can't get. Or, as I've quoted a number of times over the years, those other great theologians, the strolling bones, I mean the rolling stones. (coughs) 
set in the refrain of their first international hit, I can't get no satisfaction. And why can't I get no satisfaction? Well, it's because there's a man on the TV telling me how white my shirts could be, but he can't really be a man because he don't smoke the same cigarettes as me. I can't get no. No, no, no. Hey, hey, hey. But some level of discontentment can be found anywhere, within any person. And so our loving God warns us against the root of that discontent. And he does that in verse 17 of Exodus chapter 20. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Today we conclude our series in the Ten Commandments with the last, last but foundational command, you shall not covet. Let's ask God to help us. Father, thank you for instructing us in your word about the very things with which you as our omniscient God then knew we would struggle with. Lord, you know that our hearts wander. You know that our hearts wander from you and wandering from you then makes us discontent because we were made for you. And so thank you for warning us. Thank you for warning us not only in this command, but then explaining that throughout your word. Help us then today as we look at this, as we explain this, as we tease it out and we apply it to our lives. Help us each to be willing to do that so that we are changed into people who desire you above all and therefore have the contentment that only comes from you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We have inserted for you in your program an outline for the message. I encourage you to take that out to follow along. And I say, first of all, that covetousness is a radical sin. I call it a radical sin because radical means root. So this is a root sin. This is a sin from which other things grow, from which other things spring. Covetousness is a root sin, a radical sin. The late great theologian Francis Schaeffer in his book, True Spirituality, noted the foundational nature of this command forbidding coveting. He said, the commandment not to covet is an entirely inward thing. Coveting is never an outward thing from the very nature of the case. It's an intriguing factor that this is the last command that God gives us in the Ten Commandments and thus the hub of the whole matter. The end of the whole thing is that we arrive at an inward situation and not merely an outward one. Actually, we break this last command not to covet before we break any of the others. Any time that we break one of the other commandments of God, it means we've already broken this commandment in coveting. It also means that any time we break one of the others, we break this last commandment as well. So no matter which of the other commandments you break, you break two. The commandment itself and this commandment not to covet. One preacher noted the connection between this tenth commandment and the other nine. He said the tenth commandment impacts all the other nine. For example, the first command, you shall have no other gods except me. Covetousness is what prevents one from giving God exclusive worship and a failure to recognize and respect God's absolute rights and everything and anything less than that is idolatry. 
The second command means that covetousness can substitute something tangible, something engraved in the place of God. And so we substitute something else that's engraved, such as that which comes from the U.S. Mint in our day. That which is engraved would be the God of the American dream. It easily pushes God out. The third command that we not use the name of the Lord our God in in vain. That third command, covetousness, removes the sincerity with which God is to be worshipped. In other words, you do not take God's name in vain. And covetousness can remove that sincerity by which God is to be worshipped and served. The fourth command, covetousness can result in a failure to give God that portion of the week that's rightfully his when he says, remember the Sabbath, to give him our time, as we preached several weeks ago when we looked at that passage. There is that connection between coveting and the commands that I just listed, the first four of the ten that are on the first tablet of stone that are related to our interactions with God, our vertical relationship. We're going to see in a bit that it also underlies the commands about our horizontal relationships with one another as well. So covetousness is a root sin. It's a radical sin. And that means a few things in your outline. It means it rules our thoughts and actions. Jesus said, it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. So the heart, as used in the Bible, which is the control center of the person, the heart is truly the heart of the matter. Because everything else springs from that. That's why the Bible tells us, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. A well-known and very good Christian counseling organization, the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation. I've used a lot of their materials and recommend a lot of their books over the years. I've gone to some of their seminars and conferences as well. One of those, one of their authors, Paul Tripp, said, you know, CCEF... Even though we've written books on all sorts of topics, we've written books on substance abuse, we've written books on uh, sexual addiction, we've written books on uh, raising teenagers, raising, raising children, on midlife crisis, on relationships. We've written books on all sorts of topics, Paul Tripp said, but the truth is we've really only written one book. And then he went on to explain what he meant by that. We've really only written one book because the premise of every one of these books is that the heart is active and our sinful hearts are active in the various situations in which we find ourselves. Whether that's abusing substances, it's got a heart root to it. Whether that's in raising our children or our children rebelling, there's a heart root to that. Midlife crisis, depression, all of it ultimately has a heart root. That preacher that I mentioned earlier who showed the connection between coveting and the first four commands, he did the same for the other five that have to do with our relationships with others. He said, the fifth command, to honor your father and your mother, covetousness causes children to become prodigals, to want their own way, wanting their own portion in life and the very teeth of parental advice and common sense and the will of God. It's greed It's a desire for personal aggrandizement. 
The sixth command, who shall not murder, covetousness may cause someone to kill in order to get that person's wife or his property. In fact, in the Bible, it records David coveting the wife of Uriah. And David brought down on the kingdom murder and a whole lot more. The seventh command, you shall not commit adultery. A covetous look of lust always precedes adultery. The Apostle Peter talks about those who have, quote, eyes full of adultery. Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 14 says, eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. And in our sensual culture today, we're inundated with temptations to that particular form of covetousness. Anyone who's been caught in this sin, preachers or whoever, he says, as far as I know, if they ever repented, they all will say that it all began in the mind. It began in fantasy. It began in the heart. It began with a coveting of something that was not theirs. And then the eighth command, covetousness, precedes stealing of any kind. I want it, and so I take it, and violate thou shalt not steal. And then the ninth command about bearing false witness. Covetousness causes false witness and accusation to be born in order to gratify some desire. And so it is something that rules our thoughts. It rules our actions. It comes from inside. The heart is the heart of the matter. It is an inside job. Everything that we do on the outside, everything we say, everything that we do, everything that we think starts with the desires of the heart. And that's why I say in your outline next, it is idolatry. It rules our thoughts and actions, but it is idolatry. The Bible calls it that directly. In Colossians chapter 3, Put to death what is earthly in you, including covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, the Hebrew and Greek words. So in the first part of your Bible written in Hebrew, the New Testament written in Greek, in both Hebrew and Greek, the words translated covet mean intense desire. Intense desire. And so to have an intense desire for anyone or anything ultimately than God places that person or that thing in the place of God. And that's why the Bible calls it idolatry. And the desire may be for something evil. It may be what Galatians chapter 5 and verse 19 calls the desires of the sin nature. And then it lists a whole bunch of those. It may be for something evil, but not necessarily. The idolatrous desire may be actually for something good. John chapter 4, we see this fact, or excuse me, James chapter 4, where James asks what causes fights and quarrels among you. So what causes the outward action of discord between people? Fights, quarrels among individuals, perhaps in your home. Perhaps on the way to church this morning. What causes that? And James says, don't they come from your desires? You could write there, don't they come from the coveting within you? You covet something. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and you fight. That's why you quarrel and fight. That's why the external activity of fighting And harming occurs because there's an internal battle going on. 
But it can be for a good thing. It can start there that I desire something good. Perhaps I desire children that obey. That's a good desire. The Bible says, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. That's a good desire. But that good desire can and often does become idolatrous. Or, and I'll tell you how in a moment. Or it might be that I just want some peace and tranquility when I come home from work. Is that too much to ask? You know, that the house not be a war zone? And so I just want this good thing of just some peace and quiet. It's a good thing. It's fine. How does it become idolatrous? How does that desire for obedient children become idolatrous? We know that an otherwise good desire has become idolatrous when we want it too much. Now, how do I know I want it too much? I know I want it too much when I'm willing to sin in order to get it. Or I'm willing to sin because I don't have it. So what do you do when the kid doesn't obey? That's a good desire. But now, do you want it so much that you're willing to sin in order to obtain that? You're willing to be sinfully now angry at your child, and now lash out at your child, either with sinfully angry words or perhaps even physically, because you want this good thing. Now that good thing has become idolatrous because you want it more than pleasing God. Perhaps you want, if you're single, I want a companion. I want a spouse. It's a good thing, godly thing. How do you know you want it too much? You know you want it too much when it so dominates your life that you refuse to have the joy of the Lord that God commands. God says to rejoice in the Lord always, and I will say it again, rejoice. It's a command to be joyful. We've got so many, even Christian people, who refuse to obey that command because they don't have some good thing that they want. As a result, that good thing has become idolatrous covetousness is a radical sin the root it rules our thoughts and actions it is idolatry secondly it is a ubiquitous sin i don't know what ubiquitous means but that's pretty impressive you got it now ubiquitous means it's everywhere it's all over So it's a a root sin, it's a radical sin, and it's everywhere. Our hearts are such that we can make idols out of anyone or anything. And therefore, covetousness is ubiquitous. We might covet, I say in the outline, things. So often our desire, our intense desire for something revolves around money. Why money? Because money is the means by which we get the stuff. And so that's why the Bible tells us famously, not that money is the root of all evil, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And you see that in Scripture a number of times. In the first part of your Bible, the story of Achan. A man who, among God's people, was told, as you defeat the Babylonians, you're not to take any of their stuff. I'll supply your stuff. You only want any of their pagan stuff that's been tainted by them. 
Here's what the Bible says. Achan said, when I saw the plunder in the plunder, a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. I coveted them and I took them. One commentator said, if Achan had mastered the sinful desire when it struck first at his heart, he never would have yielded to the temptation to steal. We see in our New Testament the story of a husband and wife, Ananias and Sapphira. In Acts chapter 5, many of you know that, that story, but God's people had been asked to come and to give what they have in order to further the work of the Lord. And many did that. And Ananias and Sapphira sold a piece of property, the Bible tells us, and they represented that they were giving all of that to this, this offering. But the Bible tells us they held some, some of it back. And by the way, just as an aside, they were allowed to hold some back, but they can't, not allowed to lie about it. And so, they, and so they held some back. And here's what the Bible tells us. Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, kept back part of the money. And then the Bible goes and tells us what happened to them. Why did they keep that back and then lie about it? It was because of this intense desire to have. And then, of course, Judas, the betrayer of the Lord Jesus. The Bible tells us Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver Jesus over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. A desire for money, which in turn gives me the opportunity to get the things that I have an intense desire for. It's a ubiquitous sin. It might cover things, but it, we might cover, or covet things, but we also, I say in the outline, might covet persons, things, or people. We may sexually desire another person, an intense desire for another person who is not our spouse. That is always sin, always, in all circumstances. We see that in King David. We see that in his son, Amnon, as well. So that's one way that we're all quite familiar with desiring persons, an illicit, a sinful, intense desire for someone sexually who is not your spouse. It's a huge deal. I've already alluded to it. Pastor Rich has alluded to it. Offering help for our men in particular with that beginning this coming Saturday. But here's another form of this intensely desiring persons. Proverbs 29 says this, the fear of man will prove to be a snare. The fear of man. Now, you all know that Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Here you have the fear of man. You have the fear of the Lord. You have the fear of man. Fear is to hold someone in awe, in reverence. So now, with that in mind, the holding in awe, the revering of other people will prove to be a snare. It will catch you. Now, what's that look like? What's that look like in your life? What's it looks like is this. It looks like peer pressure. It looks like wanting to keep up with. It looks like wanting to have. You notice in this 10th command, you shall not covet, and then it's your neighbors and your neighbors and your neighbors. Why is that? 
I want what they have in part because I revere the opinion of people. And therefore, I have to keep up. Therefore, I succumb to the peer pressure. I mentioned CCEF and the one book that they've ever written. They wrote a book on this issue. One of their authors, Ed Welch, wrote an excellent book we have in our resource center called When People Are Big and God is Small. And in that book, he talks about this very thing, that peer pressure, that teenagers, but not just teenagers, but now grown adult adults who were those teenagers who now have their own adult forms of peer pressure, coveting approval, coveting popularity and intense desire for that. Are you a people pleaser? If you're a people pleaser and you say, and I know people like this who say, I'm going to do things because I want people to think well of me. And so I volunteer for stuff and then I don't end up doing it. I can't fulfill it, but the reason I volunteer is because I want people to approve of me. I want them to think highly of me. So I'm a people pleaser or I work myself to death for the approval of people. Covetousness is a radical sin, a root sin. It's a ubiquitous sin. We can make idols, our hearts, John Calvin said, are veritable idol factories. We can make idols out of things or persons. And then thirdly, covetousness is a consequential sin. Grave consequences to giving our hearts to anything or anyone other than God ultimately. Remember the first and greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul. If you do that, the second follows. You love your neighbor as yourself. That's the supreme command, Jesus said, to love your Lord your God. Here's what the Bible says. Wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. It begins that question with, don't you know? Wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy. Notice greedy there. That's the word for covet. That's the word for intense desire. We normally apply that to money, but it's a broader term. It just means an intense desire for anything. Nor drunkards, slanderers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, we've all done at least one of those, and that is the coveting, the greedy part. Wanting things with an intense desire that we either should not want or wanting them too much. We've all done that. So does that mean none of us goes to heaven? Well, thank God it goes on to say this. That is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So thanks be to God that the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ has given us his righteousness, a righteousness we don't have of our own, and it's only on that basis that any of us will inherit the kingdom of God. That's the good news of the gospel. But now we as Christians who claim that are called to live out the implications of that, to live that way, to live in our experience what we are in our position before God. It's a consequential sin. The Bible says elsewhere, among you there must not be even a hint of, and then it lists a bunch of things, And then there's this word. You could substitute covet. Intense desire. Intense desire for something good, but wanting it too much. An intense desire for something illicit, 
For of this you can be sure, no covetous person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So, dear friends, do you see that this is a serious issue? The heart is really the heart of the matter. And what captures your heart controls you. And so when we allow our hearts to be captured by anything ultimately other than God and God's will, then we are sinning in a very consequential way. I have some reasons for that in your outline. This is a controlling sin. It's controlling. Have you ever gotten so distracted by something that you can't concentrate on anything else? That thing, whatever it is, takes control of our minds. We begin to dream about what life would be like if only we had that. And we become discontent with what we do have. And when we become discontent, then disillusionment is not far behind. We begin to look at what God has given us with extreme dissatisfaction. We begin to judge our own lives, not by what we have, but what we do not have, that we want to have. Our disillusionment casts a, a pall over our whole lives. And then we begin to scheme in our minds about how we can get what we want. <clears throat> Perhaps we're coveting possessions until we take on a second job at the expense of family and ministry in the church. Perhaps we're coveting someone other than our spouse and we begin to look for ways that we might satisfy that illicit desire. Perhaps we're coveting someone else's success and we begin to try anything we can to think of in order to catch up to him or her by whatever means necessary. And the harder we try, the more we get frustrated because we're unable to catch up. We're unable to catch up because of what I say again in the outline. It's controlling and it's insatiable. There's never enough. As it applies to money, how much do I need? Just one more dollar. Said the first billionaire, John D. Rockefeller. Just one more dollar. There's just so much to covet. Because our hearts are these idol factories, then we can make idols out of and covet, intensely desire, anyone or anything. Let me just quickly say a few things about this, friends. I'll be talking about what I'm going to say here in a few weeks in our second hour as part of our series, You've Got Questions, God Has Answers. That starts two weeks from today during the Discovering God Hour, the 11 o'clock hour. We had an insert in your program today about that. We have those invitations at the information desk. Take a pile of those. Invite some people. On the back of that, it tells you uh, each week of the eight weeks what question we're going to be answering. When I get to... The session on why does God allow suffering? I'm going to talk about the fact, the biblical fact, that the world you are in right now and the situation you are in right now, according to the Bible, is the best of all possible situations. Yikes, that's quite a claim. It's true biblically. That right now, even with all the fallenness and all the junk and everything that's going on in your life, Right now, a sovereign God has you in the best possible situation. That's why you can be content. Because you know that he has you in the best possible situation, even if the circumstances are not to your liking. That's why the great apostle could say in the last chapter of the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, while he was chained to a Roman guard, imprisoned for nothing other than preaching the gospel, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. I'm in the best possible situation, Paul knew. 
And we'll see that. So understand that that's the case for you, whatever your situation is right now. Further, the way for you to conquer these intense desires, either for something illicit or something good that you want too much, the way for you to do that is to replace that desire with something better. You replace those, that desire with a better desire for God and Christ. In the words of a famous book by a Puritan writer, Thomas Chalmers, he had a book with this title, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. That is, when I have a new and better affection, it can then expel older and, and, and lesser affections. So this is a consequential sin. It's insatiable. It's controlling. And then lastly, it's destructive. I had James on chapter 4 on the screen earlier in the message where James describes the quarrels and the conflicts as coming from the pleasures that are waging war within us. And so this sin destroys, James is telling us, relationships. It causes fights and quarrels among you that come from your desires that battle within you. What's destroying your relationships? It's that. It's what's in your heart. It's those desires that are in your heart that have either been illicit or are good but have become idolatrous. It not only destroys our relationships, it destroys us. I mentioned some of the sin committed for money or for sexual pleasure by some lists given in the Bible, Achan, Amnon, Judas, Ananias, and Sapphira. For all of them, it costs them their physical lives. Now, here you are alive and breathing. Here I am alive and breathing. You're a covetous idolater. So am I. It's ubiquitous. We can make these idols out of anything. So we've all committed this sin. We all battle with this radical root sin. So how can you say, what does it mean that it's going to cost you your life? Hear this, friends. Even though we're breathing, if we're following false gods of our hearts, we're not really living. It has cost you your life. The life that you could have in the joy of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's cost you dearly. And as a result... You are the way you are. As a result, you are dissatisfied the way you are. As a result, you are discontent the way you are. As a result, you are constantly looking for someone or something that's going to give you that fulfillment. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, if I find myself looking for something that will satisfy, but I never find it in this world, then it should tell me that I was made for another world. To look for that satisfaction in this world, which is what we do and we never find, we're not really living as we could and should in the Lord Jesus Christ. Coveting has a high price. The Apostle Paul said it was this command that regularly reminded him of his own sin. You remember in Romans chapter 7 where he talks about the fact that the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, that's the very thing I do. He said this, I would not... In that passage, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. 
He picked that particular sin out. That particular commandment, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. In other words, he's saying, you tell me I shouldn't do it, and it makes me want to do it all the more. Why is that? Because of the sin within me. It's not random that Paul selected this commandment, since it is the root of all the others. So we're all lawbreakers. We've been looking at the Ten Commandments now for 11 weeks. We spent two weeks on one of them. We're all lawbreakers. What do we do? Here's the good news, the gospel. Christ satisfied the demands of God's law so that we can be declared righteous by God on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus. He paid the penalty for our failure to obey God's law. And if you come to him, he will give you the Holy Spirit to move you to obey. So the first thing you do is you come to the Lord Jesus Christ and you have his righteousness applied to you and the payment that he made on the cross for the penalty of your sin. And then secondly, cultivate being a thankful person. Thankfulness is the antidote to discontentment and the covetousness that it brings. I quoted Francis Schaeffer earlier from True Spirituality. He says, God has made us with proper desires, but if there is not a proper contentment on my part, to this extent I'm in revolt against God, and of course revolt is the whole central problem of sin. When I lack proper contentment, either I have forgotten that God is God, or I've ceased to be submissive to Him. We're now speaking about a practical test, he says, to judge if we are coveting against God. And here's that practical test. A quiet disposition and a heart giving thanks at any given moment is the real test of the extent to which we love God at that moment. A quiet disposition and a thankful heart at any moment. So here's your take-home truth. We must desire God above all other persons and things. Now, friends, the issue, as I've said over and over, is our hearts. The heart is the heart of the matter. But one last thing. It's your heart transacting with God. It's your heart regularly, every moment of every day, doing business with God, rejecting God or embracing God. Every moment of every day, you're doing one or the other. That's so important As we end this series today, next week we begin a new series. Here's the title. What's God got to do with it? And the idea over the next several weeks is to try to show us that God has everything to do with everything that's going on in your life. We'll begin that next week. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you for gathering us, instructing us, Now, Father, we ask that you'll move on our hearts, that God the Holy Spirit will move in our hearts and move us toward obedience. Move us toward a desire for you that comes from within and then affects everything without. Lord, as a result of that, then, may we be people who think in ways that are like you, that reflect your image, that talk in ways that reflect your character that behave in ways that show what you are like. Lord, we ask you to begin that in us this week so that we can do what we were put here for, to bring glory to you, to display your character to your world. 
We ask you to do this in us and through us. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.